Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. I am officially PS5-ish person. I have a thing. What is PS5-ish? What is the ish part of the conversation? Well, it is a digital-only sort of console, so ah. that has some controversy surrounding it. But I am right now quite happy with my purchase, and I will maybe regret it years from now, but right now I regret nothing. What do you think of it? What are you playing on it? So far, I've only gotten Final Fantasy XIV running on it. I'm doing the beta there, where um, they have the, the PS5 version going. And the the way it's so much faster is just crazy. Plus, it's funny because I basically went from a regular HD display to a 4K display, and all my windows were little, all my windows were little tiny things like floating in the middle of the screen. I had to readjust everything as well. And now I've upgraded to 4K. I'm a big girl now. Do you have a 4K TV? I do. I bought one because uh, you know what? It's not really an option not to have one if you're in this industry anymore. Look at you. Got a 4K TV and a PS5 playing Final Fantasy XIV in the beta. It must have been such a huge upgrade for you. Holy cow. It was. Uh, compared to the vanilla PS4 I had, oh, absolutely. Like, everything just loads so quickly now. The I don't like the interface of the PS5 very much. I'm, maybe I'll get used to it. I'm really salty that I can't have my theme. I had a really cool Night in the Woods theme that I really loved, and I can't have that now. And now... It, now when I turn it on, you always have like game screens blurring at you like, hey, buy this. Here's what's selling. Here's what's hot. And I just don't like that. Just give me a really cool, calm Night in the Woods theme. It was like a kind of a dark, quiet Night in the Woods, so to speak. I miss my Valkyria Chronicles theme from my PS4. It was a really good theme. And it makes me kind of frustrated because themes seem to be going by the wayside, Nadia. With the Nintendo Switch, they still have not released themes like they had on the 3DS, which is very frustrating. And the same and the same goes for the PS5. I mean, the PS5 did just come out, but they had themes pretty early on the PS4 if I recall correctly. So they did. I feel like the Nintendo Switch not having themes is the funniest thing to me because I blatantly remember being at that Switch event uh in January before the the system launched and they're talking about all the features blah blah, blah this and that. And we're like, well, where's themes? Like, oh, well, uh, maybe themes will be there in the first update. And the themes never showed up, ever. Well, they were like, it's easy money, right? I mean, you would think that you just put out some assets and you charge a, a mint for them, like with Zelda or Mario or something. People buy them. I'd buy them. I'd buy a Zelda theme for my Switch. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'd buy a theme in two seconds. I did not have much of a theme going off my 3DS, but I do know... People who date, like my husband, had one going on, and it was really cool. Well, I have a love-hate relationship with my PS5, Nadia. <laughs> what did it do? Did it bite you? <laughs> yes. It bit me, Nadia. That's exactly <laughs> what it did. Though it does look like it has a big flappy mouth with it. It like... does. That's why I asked. Or it's more like a PS4 that's been pulled apart or something like that. It's kind of weird. It's so painful to look at. Uh I love my PS5 because it loads extremely quickly and the games are super smooth and I got this high refresh rate monitor and the games look absolutely nice. gorgeous on it. I going back going from a PS5 back to the PS4 is a little like going back from a Super Nintendo back to the Nintendo or going back from the PlayStation 2 to the original PlayStation just in terms of fidelity and how smooth everything is. So I love that. Things I'm uncertain about. I'm uncertain about how I feel about the DualSense. Because on the one hand, 
it can often feel very nice on my in my hands, but if a game uses it well, like Returnal, then it feels great and I love it. And you're like, wow, the haptic feedback's incredible. But so many games just completely overdo it. And the game, the damn controller is just shaking my hand all the time, making my hands numb. And I'm like, this is just yeah. overwhelming me. This feels so distracting. Or the um, in FIFA, I could not play FIFA on PS5 because the triggers felt sticky because mm. they were actively pushing back against me in turn like literally in the game they included this as a feature the the triggers will fight you <laughs> and i'm like why can you not turn it off i think you could but in the moment it was so annoying there's two things that really worry me about haptic feedback number one uh i know i went through two playstation 4 controllers because those batteries do not last uh and you can't change them i actually made fun of xbox for being haha you're still using disposable batteries but Given how rarely I have to change the Xbox controller's battery, uh, I kind of feel like maybe that was a better choice. As much as I hate, you know, throwing out batteries because the environments are already enough of a screw up. Uh, and second of all, there is a lot of talk about how all that rumbly tumbly stuff going on for HD rumble in the Switch might be what's causing Joy-Con drift because thing it knocks things askew. Because of course it does, and that might be the case with the. Uh, Dual sense as well. Uh, I haven't heard a lot about drifting in uh, PlayStation 5 controllers, but I have heard uh, reports of problems. And these are problems that don't affect the Xbox controller, which doesn't rumble. So I don't know. I feel like maybe people do not think out the whole rumble thing in the long term very well. When you say rumble, because like rumble as a force feedback type thing has been around for freaking ages, as you'll recall. So. You mean like the HD rumble, the crazy hat? Yeah, exactly. Like it's not just like, um, it's not just regular, oh, here's a rumble pack, yay. It's just rumbling when things happen. This is more, the more complex rumbling. Maybe that does something to really jostle things loose. I, I can't say for sure, but I'm not an engineer, God knows. But it's just a suspicion that has been coming up, and I think it's a good one. I feel like in a year, everybody's PS5 is just going to be falling apart, and DualSense controllers are going to be coming to life and attacking people. <laughs> not gonna be great it's funny i was talking to my husband about how skynet and you think skynet and terminator you think of like you know big chunky robots that are all silver and and retro and no the robots are going to kill us they're going to look like playstation 4s and ipods and really like slick things that you can't take apart because you're not allowed to fix your own machines anymore i just want to point out that the ps5 looks a lot like the turret from portal so it just does, yeah. be ready. So all the net PS5s will network together to create GLaDOS and then start opening fire on everybody. So not only will I die, I'll have to hear a sarcastic banter before I die. Is the Sony the PS5 will be making fun of you as it kills you? Yes, I'll deserve it. All right, Nadia, let's talk about what we've got this week. We have another patron topic. This is the last one for a little bit, but it's a good one. RPG. ROM hacks. That's what we're going to be talking about this week, in addition to the news and what we've been playing and all of the other topics that we normally hit in a weekly episode. If you enjoy the show, do me a favor, leave us a review on the podcatcher of your choice. It brightens our day and it helps the visibility of the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And our show is on all of the relevant social platforms specifically Twitter and Instagram under Blood God Pod. 
And Nadia, we have a Patreon, as you well know, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod, where we, not too long ago, released a new pantheon of the blood god around Terra Nigma, and that was a super fun episode to record. That was. That was one of the ones I was just really waiting for to record because I knew I was in my element. And I think I think I thrive in my element, and we had a great time. You thrive in your element? I'd be a little worried if you didn't thrive in your element, Nadia. Oh, I meant I thrived in my element when ah, it came to fair, that episode. It was a good episode. We had Steve Tramer on there. We were talking about Quintet, which I know is a personal passion for you. I will sit here and ramble about Quintet without taking a breath for an hour if anyone will let me. I mean, I'd be really impressed if you did that, and that would be a good YouTube <laughs> stunt. And then i fall and die, but it would have been worth it. Just have a little timer down in the corner. Yeah, yeah. And you, uh, everyone watching me very carefully to make sure I'm not taking that breath. Did you know that a human, a well-trained human, can probably hold their breath for at least 11 minutes? I know. Isn't that awesome? Uh, I know I have read about divers like there are uh, people like indigenous people on certain islands who make their living by spear fishing and they do it without any sort of equipment so they dive for like minutes at a time and meanwhile if i'm swimming and i like swimming but i put my face underwater and in 10 seconds i'm like and I, I can't hold my breath in the show my octopus teacher which i think probably won an award during the oscars I the it's about a guy who dives into the water and hangs out with an octopus for long periods of time, and they bond. And we learn about how smart octo- octopi are. Octopi. But he was literally just snorkeling. He did not have diving gear on. He would just go into this frigid water for long periods of time and just chill with this octopus. It was pretty amazing. But I could not, imagine, could not believe the amount of footage that he got from this octopus just being there in the water without taking a breath for multiple minutes at a time. The human body is so it's so like susceptible to conditioning that it's actually kind of scary. Well, here are a few other things that you can look forward to on our Patreon this month, Nadia. Our next Pantheon of the Blood God is for Mass Effect. We've already kicked off the game club for that. We'll be playing the Legendary Edition. Very exciting. And we also have a watch of the Fellowship of the Rings, Nadia. We're starting the Summer of the Rings off right by watching the first movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And we're going to record a big old episode about that. I like how you said we're starting it off right by starting with the first movie. No, let's start with Two Towers. Come on. And then we'll I go mean, to the... Well, then I would be starting it <laughs> off wrong. <laughs> well, that's true. There are like very few ways you can, do, you can mess this up, but uh, we are going to do things right by starting at the beginning as we should. As a reminder, you can subscribe to our Patreon and get 10% off if you subscribe for an entire year. So, okay. Let's get on to what we've been playing, Nadia. Nadia, what's your sacrifice to the Blood God this week? Well, I made a mistake and bought Pokemon Snap. That's not a mistake. That seems like the correct answer. If anything, I feel ashamed for not having purchased it yet. It's totally the correct answer, but now I'm ignoring almost everything else to play Pokemon Snap, so... Yeah, that was my mistake, but it's a good mistake, I think. How do you like it? I'm really enjoying it. I did not really play the first game. I was not a huge fan of it. I don't even remember if I like really even rented it or anything like that. But as someone who is really into like nature and wildlife and stuff, I love the idea of just kind of going through these parks and taking pictures and scanning to see who's hiding in the trees and throwing things at them. And I don't know if you saw it on Twitter where um, I made a mention about how going through the parks at night is kind of like Homer trying to go through African lion safari and all the animals are sleeping and he's honking his horn furiously. Like, let them sleep on their own time. 
that's pretty much me. Like all the animals are sleeping. I'm just throwing apples at them. Like, hey, wake up, wake up. I need to get a good picture from you. I need my four star picture. Wake up. So yeah, I'm having a good time. All the Pokemon Snap discourse seems to be centering on the actual graphics and how good they are, which they seem to be actually pretty good. They're very good, very um, not extremely complex, but still very, very nice to look at in that Pokemon way. Everything looks very clean. Everything's really well animated. I like how the Pokemon interact with each other and with you. It's a it's a good looking game, and um, I'm having a good time with it. I think I told you my Pokemon Safari pitch, Nadia. I I don't remember what that was. My Pokemon Safari pitch is basically Pokemon Snap, but off the rails, where you can just drive around in a car and see Pokemon in their natural habitats and discover them and take pictures. So again, it's like Homer driving off the road and going into lion territory. Yeah, I, I dig yeah. it. No, yeah, I'd be totally into it. Maybe something like that new Sinnoh open world game, but you're just a photographer instead of um, living in Edo era Japan for some reason. Yeah, and you'd have to carry, like, bear mace or something because you don't <laughs> want to get attacked by a dragonite or something. Yeah, no, it'd be cool. And you could just would be, be walking through the fields and you look over the mountains in the distance and the dragonite's flying around. So I, would, I would be into that game. I'd play it. Heck, if uh, just the very concept of Pokemon Snap is working for me, so just kind of taking that one up would work for me very well. Are there any particular pictures that you really enjoyed getting, Nadia? I know that I... <laughs> I took a picture of Grookey and Pichu kind of playing together, and they, I happened to get a snap of them raising their hands and kind of smiling at each other. So I uploaded that and added the caption, Hail Satan. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if Nintendo has pulled it yet, because I do know they, <laughs> they might not be pleased with it. Uh, I'll let you all know how that goes. Well done, Nadia. <laughs> Thank you. I thought, I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> Reminds me a little bit of a video I watched recently of baby otters just chilling out in a otter daycare in japan and one of the shots was of somebody feeding the otter and when they were done the person in the otter did a high five and it was amazing i love love otters so much i love otters they're one of my favorites but uh so how far are you in pokemon snap um i'm only on like the second island because i am basically going back and forth a lot and perfecting my pictures and fulfilling like there's a lot of requests that like todd and the professor asks you to, hey, get a, a snap of this Pokemon yawning or something like that. And I, I keep going and doing those. So I've been a little slow to progress, but having fun the whole way. I heard that it's a bit of a grind as you got you get later into the game. It is a bit of a grind. I find that the islands do unlock quite slowly. Maybe that's part of my problem as well and why I'm just kind of going back and retaking a lot of pictures. But to the game's credit, you do get different scenarios going on with the islands. Uh, for example, on the first island, the first time you go through it, the, there's like Bidoof's building a dam. And then when you go through it later on, the Bidoof's finish the dam so you can, I guess, drive over it, screw them. And you have a new, a whole new area sort of open to you. So it's not like you're doing the same things over and over again. There's always something new to see. Well, Nadia, I want to pick up Pokemon Snap, and I probably will over the weekend, but honestly, there are a lot of games to play right now, so I feel a little bit overwhelmed in terms of choice. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I am certainly overwhelmed because I still want to get back to Shin Megami Tensei 3. I want to get back to Monster Hunter. Uh, Although we did, uh, there was a little bit of a diversion yesterday where the Blood God Discord got together and did a Final Fantasy XIV raid. That was a lot of fun. And apparently Titan kicked your collective asses all over again. Yeah, Titan just destroyed us. The Again, shout out to Victor, because he always organizes the best Final Fantasy events, especially for the newbies. 
we had a big problem with Titan, though. These are all extreme raids. I've never done extreme raids before. I just, I would not do them without friends because I don't want to be, I don't want people to tell me I suck because I do. So I, I was trying to tank, and I was not a very good tank, and everyone was very patient with me. But the problem with Titan is he jumps and he, the arena crumbles under him, and that's the main problem. Everyone's just kind of falling off and dying. And once you fall off, you can't come back to the to the fight, so that really screws you up. Once your tanks are gone, your healers are next to go, and it, it just turned into a real mess. But we did get Garuda done, so that was good. I'm surprised that you're tanking in against a very difficult boss like Titan, since I know that tank isn't really your forte, as it were. I picked up Dark Knight because number one, Dark Knight. Number two, it really does have an excellent, excellent story behind it. Like the, it is probably my favorite, one of my favorite Final Fantasy subquests ever. It's just so, so emotional and fun. Like I said on Twitter once, the whole concept of the Dark Knight and the stories that follow it are literally built around violence and rape and child molestation even but this is also a quest line where a dark knight is bullied so badly by moogles that he starts crying so <laughs> Aww, poor dark knight it, 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 dark knights in the game are very very i don't want to say sweet because they have a lot of massive problems but it's very the whole quest line is based around acceptance of who you are what you are the darkness in you the light within you it's all stuff I really, really, really dig. And Dark Knights always kind of turn out... They, they tend to adopt kids who are, who, who are just kind of orphaned or in horrible circumstances, like one child in particular that I won't get into because it's a spoiler. But it's just... I do know the scenario writer for the Dark Knight quests. Um, unfortunately, her name slips my mind, but she's really, really excellent. She wrote the scenario for Shadowbringers, which, of course, people are saying one of the best Final Fantasy stories of all time. She's writing Endwalker for the expansion so i'm really really looking forward to to seeing what she's doing there i'd actually really love her for her to write final fantasy 16 but i guess she's busy dark knights remind me of the witchers of the final fantasy universe they're a lot like the witches of the final fantasy universe although instead of protecting against monsters they kind of protect against well basically they're chaotic uh not really neutral chaotic good i suppose maybe what that Dark Knight needs is a little otter to give him a high five, and then he'll be can. much happier. You can have an otter. You can have an otter. There's a little perfect. There's a little minion, a little pet called go. the Otter Otter. Adorable. And it has, it has a little hat. Well, Nadia, I would like to offer you a personal apology, and also to all of our fans. I haven't been playing Final Fantasy XIV lately. I've been very overwhelmed by work and also various other games to play, but I have been enjoying it and i do seriously mean to get back to it uh sometime in the very near future because i would like to actually get through the 11 billion hours that i need to play this game yeah i think you'll like it like the story and stuff once it kind of really gets going and there's a lot to like with the systems and stuff you can do a whole lot of character customization you'd probably love well the game that i'm playing instead of final fantasy 14 nadia is returnal i think i might have mentioned it a week ago talking about how awesome it is Man, that game is kind of a slog. I like it, but <laughs> it's also exhausting because it's like Hades, only if running through a single area in Hades took 90 minutes. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's the that's the one thing that has me a little bit hesitant to try it, is uh, hearing about how long the runs take. I was gorgeous. Stay. You should play it at least Oh, once. I definitely do intend to. Yeah. I definitely do intend to. I think it's worth picking up. Um Maybe, I don't know if first-party PlayStation games go on sale very often, but mm, it, sometimes. 
if it happens to be available on sale, I would absolutely pick it up. Though there's a bit of a kerfuffle this week because they released a patch, Nadia. Right. That (laughs) corrupted saves and they immediately yanked it back. And now they're releasing a new patch. I can't play Returnal tonight because my PS5 updated while it was on rest mode. So I'm afraid to turn it on because I don't want to lose all my progress. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. I think that's one reason I hesitated because I heard about that, the problem. And I said, well, maybe I'll I'll pick it up once I hear the patch is out and not erasing people's saves. It has the bugs and some other issues. And, I mean, the fact that it lacks an autosave, I think, is a problem. It should... Okay, so every there every area in Returnal is kind of a discrete room. It really should autosave as you go through each room uh, in a quick save kind of way, you know, like so if you die, it quick saves, you know. Yeah. So. Like I think Hades has that where every room you go into is autosaved and it does not detriment it's not a detriment to the game's difficulty or anything like that. It's just uh Let's say you, you put the game down, you have to return to it later, or um, as you say, you stop the game. There's no guarantee that the PlayStation 5 is not going to update in the middle of uh, whatever you're doing. And that can get losing like two hours of progress is not fun. So I really do hope that they consider that and put an autosave in there. I, like I said, I don't think it's going to kill the, the game's difficulty or anything like that or its balance. You would know better than I would. Well, Patrick Klepik wrote a pretty good article. Uh, on Vice about how it's probably harder than it looks to actually put an autosave in there. Mm. I'm sure Housemark is investigating it right now, but there's a non-zero chance that they'll go, this is going to break a lot more than you actually think. So I don't know. (laughs) They should probably get the whole uh, game-eating save files thing squared away first, and then they can worry about autosaves. I wound up writing an op-ed over at IGN about how I think Returnal's kind of desire to be this big budget experience that was like beautiful graphics to provide value for $70 purchase, that kind of thing, is at odds at the with the kind of quick nature of a roguelite. So many roguelites like Dead Cells and Hades and that kind of thing are very tight experiences. Mm-hmm. They're meant to be kind of finished in one sitting. And I guess you could probably do that with Returnal, like that's a thing, but it feels like much more of a slog than your typical yeah. roguelike. Like there's just something off about that game's pacing. So I ended up writing about that. I still want to give it a try with mm. the pacing in mind. I know it's not a perfect game, but it, I do like how it is, as you say, a triple A, at least presented game. And they did something a little different with it. I do remember seeing the trailers for it and being really impressed with the atmosphere. So I don't want to miss it. That game's gorgeous too, Nadia. It's yeah, really yeah. beautiful. So totally worth at least giving a try. So Time to put my PS5 through its paces. Time to put it through their paces. That's right. Okay, Nadia, let's get on to the news. So on Friday, we got news that there will be a new Judgment game, but that is less interesting to RPG fans than the news that Yakuza will be turn-based from now on. Shout out to Matt Kim over at IGN for getting the breakout. Thank you, to Matt. Good job. Good job, Matt. Well done. Those IGN newsies, they're real good, I gotta real say. Top of the ball. Best of the best. <laughs> on the ball. But yeah, so Yakuza being turn-based from now on, Nani, I have to say I'm very happy about this development. Yeah, I know a lot of people aren't happy, but I am definitely happy. I think I made a mention in the notes how I'm that guy from the memes with the sicko shirt saying, yes, yes, that's me. I mean, just play Judgment. There you go. You get your action game. 
Yeah, Judgment is still going to be action. Yeah, because that's going to be turn-based RPG. And I have not played Judgment, but I have heard great things about it. So you, as long as the writing is good and the characters are good and, and they always are in these games, then I, I'm solid with whatever gameplay choices they make. My main thing with the turn-based combat in Yakuza is that I hope they continue to refine it because as much mm-hmm. as I liked Yakuza Like a Dragon, it got to be a little bit of a grind as you got further into the game and kind of repetitive in some ways, kind of like the action, honestly. So I think there are things that they can do to continue to actually refine the combat in Yakuza Like a Dragon, but otherwise I like the more tactical nature of it in general better than the just kind of the beat em up uh button mashing that was in previous games yeah it is certainly a good start and i think they can really build off that to make something uh, even more refined final fantasy 7 remake intergrade got its final trailer nadia it'll be out next month it's split into two parts the first part shows us some scenes with cloud and the gang seems this is all taking place when the play is about to fall in sector seven then it focuses on yuffie we also see Scarlet's mech and a couple of bozos from Dirge of Cerberus. Oh, I shouldn't call them bozos. Maybe I'll take them in. Maybe I'll like them in Integrate. I might, but any, I'm very suspicious of anyone from Dirge of Cerberus. I'm watching you, Dirge of Cerberus cast. That's why well you should be, Nadia, because honestly, why are we referencing this garbage? Why? What's with all the Dirge of Cerberus deep cuts? I, I guess kudos to, to Square Enix for acknowledging this this thing exists because I know if it were like the, it reminds me of when I was younger and I wrote really bad stories and I still have those stories, but they're shoved into a, into a folder and you'll never see them. <laughs> and I'll never reverence them as, as I shouldn't. And Square Enix seems to be very proud of their uh, half baked ideas and half baked games. So I got to salute their confidence, I suppose. I I think we were talking about this in the previous episode. Maybe it was Nomura and, the rest of the gang kind of see themselves as the keeper of Final Fantasy VII's lore, and they're like, "Now we're gonna put it all in FF7 remake." Wahahaha! Yeah, they should uh, dial it back, guys, just a bit. I love you, but dial it back. Um, the thing that interested me most about that trailer is it looks like there's gonna be a Fort Condor mini game. I think Yay. that is so cool because I sat there like an idiot playing all of Fort Condor and, and just getting the best scores possible on that piece of garbage mini game that i look back at now and i try to play final fantasy 7 and i'm like oh i'm gonna play i'm gonna do the fort condor thing oh no this is terrible this is really boring but if they can refine that and make it into something a little more fun i'm actually looking forward to that although it kind of tells me that the original fort condor is probably not going to be in the remake tell the audience what the fort condor mini game is nadia uh let's see as i recall when you first get out of midgar you soon come across fort condor which true to his name, has a big-ass condor on top of it, guarding an egg. And this is a reactor, so Shinra, Shinra wants the condor gone, and the people guarding the condor are kind of tree-huggers, and they say, no, we're, we're staying here, and uh, if you want to, to get the, if you want to get rid of the bird, you have to go through us. And that's what the minigame kind of stems from, is you, they are pitting, like, artillery and soldiers against you, and you are doing the same against them, and you have to, it's the same, it's kind of a triangle system where humans outclass beasts without class machines or something like that and yeah it's actually a great idea but number one it looks terrible because it's, every sprite there is made out of three triangles i'm not i'm being quite literal here and second of all it's just slow as heck and just not particularly well balanced but it looks like it could be a lot of fun in the in the remake because it's a cute little almost like a 3d chess like you had in the star wars uh, 
scene there. What do you think of Yuffie's portrayal in Final Fantasy VII Remake Intergrades trailer? Oh, she's upset about something. You can tell that much. She kind of screams at the end, so I'm interested to see what, what she's screaming about. Maybe someone stole her materia. Hmm. I saw a bunch of conversation about how Wu Tai is being changed a fair amount in FF7 Remake, and it seems like Yuffie as a character might be changed with it to be maybe slightly more serious this time around. Yeah, they are definitely integrating Wu Tai into the remake narrative. And I think I said this last week, is they're scaling it back a bit so that the war is still going on versus where in the vanilla Final Fantasy VII scenario, the war was over, Wu Tai was defeated. But it looks like they are still a holdout against Shinra, and that takes uh, that takes precedence in the story. Would you say that they're integrating or integrating her more into the story? Da 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. All right. Well, we got a few more weeks before Final Fantasy VII Remake comes out. Look forward to replaying it on my fancy new PS5, and you too, Nadia. It'll be great. Yeah. I can be the cool kids now. I can be with the cool kids. You're a cool kid cool now, kid Nadia. Wow. Yay. Yay. All right. Speaking of the cool kids, let's talk about RPG ROM hacks. Don't go away. Hey RPG fans, it's your friend Cat Bailey, host of Axe of the Blood God, and I'm here to tell you about our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. Every single month we have exclusive RPG goodness for all of our listeners, including tributes to classic games, watches of shows like The Witcher, and of course our Pantheon of the Blood God, in which we explore classic RPGs from Final Fantasy VIII to Skies of Arcadia. Here's a glimpse of what you have been missing. The other thing that kind of defined Terranigma was its sheer scale and its scope. And this was a thing that was kind of common on Super Nintendo RPGs circa 1995-96. I would say Dragon Quest VI was a really big RPG. Final Fantasy VI, obviously, humongous RPG. And it felt like developers, they really understood the technology at play at this point. And they felt like they had a massive canvas to paint on. They had gone from the very basic adventures of like Dragon Warrior and that kind of thing on the original NES. And they felt like they could paint on a great scale. And Terranigma, I mean, it's like all of human history is that the and... scope of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just thinking about it and saying it out loud, it's so crazy how you start from nothing to bringing back nature bringing back humanity and then building cities if you can figure that out you can make some really incredible cities that tell their own stories like it's, it, there's so much in there yeah and then also there's the the very strange thing you can do where you can play through the game without doing any of the economic development stuff so as you go from dungeon to dungeon you're going from like this pre-dark ages area to a castle to mm -hmm. the east coast of america which is somehow in maybe the 1990s but doesn't have airplanes <laughs> i mean there's a skateboarding black kid so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's at some point, we're going to have to get into Perel because, like, he's maybe one of my ho most hated video game characters of all time. And, like, I mean, it's just so strange. So weird. And then you go to the parts of Russia where there's a 
cult that's building a future tower and an airship to uh, turn everyone into zombies and save people from death. That was a special look at some of our patron-exclusive content. If you want to hear more, head on over to patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. Now, back to the episode. This week's topic comes courtesy of $50 patron Drew Warrenis, who sent us a whole bunch of topics. They're honestly all really good. I would love to talk about all of them, but we can only do one this week. And I picked RPG ROM hacks because it's not something that we've really talked about at this point. Nadia, curious question for you. Have you really delved into the wonderful world of RPG ROM hacks in your time? Well, uh, first of all, many thanks to Drew and his support. Thank you very much. And thank you, Drew. We appreciate really cool it. Really topic. Yep. Now, when you talk about ROM hacks, I kind of separate that idea into categories. First of all, you have fan translations, which of course are some of the most extreme ROM hacks. Like uh, there's some really interesting story behind the hacking of Suikin Tetsu 3. But also, as you say, fan games. Um, that is people making games out of either the base uh, games, say Chrono Trigger, or just borrowing the sprites and putting them on RPG Maker or whatever. And then you have certain hacks that rebalance games, which are very popular because, well, 16-bit cartridge games, you can't really patch them that easily. So people have gone out there and balanced a lot of the problems that linger. For my personal history, I certainly, certainly downloaded a lot of fan translations, and we'll get into those because I played a lot of those. As for fan games, I I can't say I've played many RPG fan games. The most prominent fan game I could think of that I did play and finished all the way through was not an RPG, and that was uh, another Metroid 2 remake, which was just fantastic. I, I just consumed that whole thing, and Nintendo took it down. I do remember how um, in the earliest days, I mean, not every project was a big one, of course. I think I wrote in the notes about how, at most, maybe someone would put a KKK hood on Mario and call it funny, or like give Mega Man a massive schlong and also call it funny. So it was always really good when fan groups got together and put their talents to use. I think my first introduction to the wonderful world of ROM hacking was when I downloaded a giant pack of Super Nintendo ROMs, and in there they included random Sonic the Hedgehog for Super Nintendo, and I was very (laughs) confused. I I remember that. How does this work? And the game was kind of janky and kind of weird, and it was... Imagining Sonic the Hedgehog as run on the Super Nintendo. And I was like, well, this is an interesting curiosity. And then I moved on with my life. Um, on the PC side, I wouldn't I don't know if this would be considered ROM hacking per se, because I was more working on a disc. I was editing missions and making missions in TIE Fighter and X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. So it was a much, kind cool. of my own my own version of ROM hacking, I guess, where I was taking existing content. And mm. kind of repurposing it, recreating it, making my own stories, that kind of thing. And that's what kind of a lot of people do with RPGs in many ways, is that they will create these gigantic expansion packs for Chrono Trigger or Final Fantasy VI or whatever. 
complete with brand new stories and everything, but really there's not a lot of new content per se. They're just repurposing what's already there. Yeah, and even those those fan games are a little bit far between because, as you can imagine, putting together a whole new game, even with assets that exist, is a, a very big undertaking. You're talking about story, programming new battles, sometimes programming new music. Uh, one of the games we'll probably talk about is, I believe it's Chrono Trigger Crimson Echoes, which was mostly finished. Uh, that's another thing you kind of have to contend with is, are you going to get a and d before you can finish what you're doing? And in a lot of cases... If a team doesn't fall apart on its own, then in C&D, we'll do it for them. Just recently, I was very proud of myself because I was able to patch the Final Fantasy V translation from the GBA onto the original SNES game and then put wow. it on my SNES Classic. Yay! Hacking. You're like, you're like in- Frankensteining multiple things together <laughs> that really shouldn't be. But the reaction, but the result was great. I was so pleased with myself. And then I never played it again. Yeah, I, I actually patched and put onto my SNES Classic a version of Final Fantasy VI that is closer to the GBA translation, but still utilizes a lot of kind of the Wolsey charm. So it was a really nice in-between translation. I haven't finished it, but I did get to the World of Ruin. Speaking of the Final Fantasy V fan translation, by the way, over on IGN, the place where I work now... We actually have a story that went up over the weekend called The Untold Drama and History Behind Final Fantasy V's Fan Translation. So I think this is a great article. This is very much for our audience. I'm not shoehorning it in at all. So you should go check it out. It's on topic, Nadia. It It is actually on topic. And I do know that like fan games, fan translations very, very often fell apart before they could be finished because, well, it's a lot of work to do for free. I know Seeking Densetsu 3's translation was a very special case because that just wasn't just a matter of, okay, well, we're translating the text and dumping it into the game, which on its own is a very big undertaking. Apparently Square used some kind of hex editor that really, really compressed the text because that was a, that was a huge undertaking for the, S, for the Super Famicom at the time. So they really had to compress everything. So translating the, the text that was there what, took a lot of technical know-how, and it wasn't just a matter of, okay, well, we'll transfer one to the other. I do think it's pretty neat how fans come together and basically Frankenstein together these elements to create the definitive edition of a game where they'll go, well, this game, this version is great, but it has some problems. This version is great. It has some problems. Put them all together. Boop. And we have an amazing, uh, we have the perfect version. Great. I do know that some of the earliest fan translations were almost done out of spite for Nintendo censorship and just a pushback mm-hmm. against Ted Wolsey because everyone believed he was in charge of censorship, which was just not the case. So you did have, say, quote-unquote, the official or best or real translation of Final Fantasy IV when translators like Clyde Mendelin look back at it now and compares it to the real Japanese translation. You will find, of course, that the these quote-unquote real translations are, all they really do is add in a lot of swear words, and they're still bad. They still are inaccurate as they just thought, well, hey, Nintendo took out the F word, so we're going to put it back in. It was never the case. Yeah, it's, uh, well, this game's hardcore now. Yeah, have you ever seen the ProZD bit where he's doing uh, official subs versus, sorry, official dubs versus fan dubs, and it's just like, the official dub is like, uh, screw you, Sasuke, you're you're my friend, and I I still love you very much, and the the fan dub is like, F you, Sasuke, and it's just nothing but Mm -hmm. swear words. That's pretty accurate. 
There was a ROM hack called Awful Fantasy, which is basically Final Fantasy VI with a lot of dick jokes. And it's great <laughs> if you enjoy if you're 14, but... I I actually played that for two seconds, and I only remember it because when you go into the... You know how there's like the classroom at the Final Fantasy VI where you can go in and talk to people and they tell you about certain spells and stuff like that? And someone describes Life 3 as, quote-unquote, it's better than Life 2, you fucking idiot. And... <laughs> And that was all I remember from that translation. <laughs> uh, you're right. It was very much a... A lot of the drama hacks were like very much, okay, if you're 14, you will love this. But yeah. And then when Fire, Fire Emblem Fates came out a few years ago, it was famously, quote unquote, censored. And oh. there was a massive fan effort to restore what they considered to be censorship, which I was going through the... I was going through the forum thread over on Serene's Forest about this uh, particular project, and they, I do remember seeing, I think on like page five, swimsuit restoration project. So, <laughs> oh goodness, not much has changed. Just remembering no. all the battles about how localization versus translation in the day, and yeah, it, it's a little more uh, violent these days, and like brutal in terms of people being uh you know chased down and and being chased off twitter or whatever because they are they quote unquote censored a game but it's still the same deal where people were always angry about the, the censorship that either was or wasn't there and then there are the people who call literally any localization censorship and are uber literalists and then will go in and try and make a version of the script that is quote-unquote as accurate as possible, but has absolutely no life, no color whatsoever. That was also happening with Fire Emblem Fates. And Nadia, you've been doing a lot of localization work, so that must make you like kind of go, ugh, inside. It's localization versus translation. Every I don't know if you've noticed, but every other week on Twitter, the debate blows up. I forget what happened recently, but there was an anime where a character said sus, as in this person is sus. And that's that just a whole caused, thing. Oh my god! That caused a war, even though sus. Yes, it is. We know what most says in terms of Among Us, but it's been a, a slang term for a very long time. And but no, it, it's like how dare the, this 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 company insert memes into my beautiful anime? And there's a real thing against memes, and I can agree with that because uh, I don't know if you ever played Guacamelee. As much as I love that game, it's all memes in the background, and it's super, super, super dated. But I don't see how a word like sus is going to severely date a game. I would personally avoid using it, but I do not think it's a, a terrible thing to do. I made the mistake of reading through that person's entire thread, and it got so insanely racist and so insanely transphobic. Yeah. Holy cow. It was terrible. Holy crap. Like I'm just like, oh, here we go again. Oh my god, this went from zero to 102 seconds flat. Yeah, I've I've seen some serious threads, but that was a serious thread. Don't go looking for it. I don't. No, don't. It's it's absolute trash. If you could burn a Twitter thread, that would be the one to burn. That would be the main kindling. I for a long time didn't really like fan hacks and that kind of thing because to me, I could always they always the hackiness of it always kind of showed through, and the, the same was kind of with Mario Maker to some extent, where I was like, well. The, these amateur efforts will never be as good as the kind of the professional versions of these games. Like they can come out and create something that kind of comes close to what the original was, but it's always going to have that little bit of amateurish to, 
amateurishness to it that's going to kind of annoy me. Now, that is giving short shrift to a lot of really amazing creators out there. But this is what I'm going to say now, especially as speedrunning has become a thing, as tools have proliferated, as it's become so easy to create high-quality art and that kind of thing, fan hacks have really progressed in a really meaningful and interesting way. And honestly, if you look at Mario Maker, some of the, the best levels in that game are so insanely creative. You just have to take your hat off to them. And of course, many of the quote-unquote professionals do actually come from the ranks of the, the fan creators, as we saw with Toby Fox. So I've developed a real appreciation, I think, for the works of fan creators over the years. We were talking about uh, Clyde Mandolin a minute ago. He, of course, he's a professional translator, still is. He's got his start with uh, Bahamut Lagoon and those other really, really early ROM translations that, uh, frankly, however wh however you think about them, like accurate versus not accurate, dry versus, versus something that takes too many liberties, the fact that it still gave us a game to play that we would not be able to access in any other way. And that was super, super important with uh, especially uh, Seeking Tattoo 3 and especially, especially Final Fantasy V, which when it finally did get an official translation, it was so, so terrible until Advance finally came out. So for a long time, this was our only road into so many important games. And I really appreciate the fact that people took time from their life, their jobs, school, whatever, to do this free thing and that they managed to keep their teams together long enough to do it. Sometimes things changed hands, but it got done. Yeah, I tip my hat to the people who did fan translations for Fire Emblem 6, which I got a reproduction flash cart from um, over at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. It's sitting in my, my cabinet. I'm going to play it at some point. And then also <laughs> Retro Game Challenge 2, which is really oh. good, but never came out in English. And then, of course, Super Robot Wars Original Generation, which our friend Christina Rose, friend of the pod, helped out with. Uh, these are all amazing fan translation projects, but I think the most notable one, the one maybe that got the most love and really in its own way helped to elevate the game in a way that uh, was pretty remarkable is Mother 3. Yeah, I think Mother 3 is the pinnacle of fan translations uh, because the writing is not just... I know the translation is accurate. I can count on that because we have uh, Mandolin at the helm, but he also did things to make it really fun and kind of do those puns that, yes, the game probably had in Japanese but would not translate into English unless you really put some thought into it. The thing that really sticks out to me was the monster. It was a, a rooster with a, a snake body, and it was called Slitherhen. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, there was a lot of really brilliant stuff about the Mother 3 localization. I, the thing that I loved the most about it was that they went and created an entire strategy guide in the form of a classic Nintendo strategy guide for this thing. Like it was a real labor of love from the fans. I have that strategy guide. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was built to basically look like the Earthbound strategy guide, which in itself was a piece of art was just a piece of art. Actually when I ordered that, I think I ordered it from Fan Gamer, it came with a free Franklin badge, which is actually die cast. It's it's actually solid metal and I have it on my keychain. It's an amazing thing to get if you're a diehard Earthbound fan. And I think the project by itself elevated the profile of Earthbound, maybe even more so. Okay, maybe not as much as Super Smash Brothers, but in some ways it came close. 
yeah, it really shone the spotlight on the game, especially around a time when people were starting to realize that Earthbound is a very special RPG. And yeah, I am glad that we have that translation because I really don't think an official one's coming soon, even though Terry Crews, the Old Spice guy, wrote on <laughs> wrote on his Twitter, localized Mother 3. <laughs> yeah, what the heck was that? I don't know. That was pretty funny. <laughs> that was our Friday mood last week. I can just hear him screaming in his voice, too, which makes it even better. I mean, he's a big gamer, right? I mean, he plays a lot of video games, which celebrities a certain age probably grew up playing Nintendo, Super Nintendo at this point. So you're going to have them having passionate and strong opinions about video games on their social media feeds, including Terry Crews, apparently. Yeah, good for him. Uh, talk about all the video games you like. I'm here for celebrities talking video games. I just think Mother 3, because Mother 3 is the one game that we haven't gotten, and I mean, there are all kinds of rumors around it. Like, you know, Nintendo started the localization, then decided not to go through with it, blah, blah, blah. I, it become, it's become this object of legend, this holy grail. Like, people will stop talking about Mother 3 if it ever actually comes out. But as long as it doesn't come out, people will lust for it. They want it on their Nintendo Switch. I wonder how people will react to it. I mean, right now, you can play Mother 3 anytime you want. The translation is still out there and it's great. But, the game itself, it's a great game. Uh, for one thing, it has some of the best sprite art you could ask for. Um, it came out right at the end of the Game Boy Advance's uh, lifespan. I feel like it's a little more forgiving than Earthbound. It's a little more accessible. Part of that is because the the scrolling number system works a lot better in Mother 3. And I absolutely love the game, but I haven't replayed it in a long time. I should really maybe get that, get that done. There are a few controversial elements that I think would come to the fore if this game ever came out. Yeah, uh, are you talking about the whole thing with the gypsies? Mm-hmm. I was there was a, a an opinion I was actually reading on Twitter about how they're extremely offensive to trans people, and I can't exactly contradict that, but I can also say, well, nobody makes fun of them. They are the wise people of the island, and nobody's out there like, haha, look at these weirdos dressing up in women's clothing. They are just accepted for who they are, and they are accepted for their wisdom. Even though, okay, yes, maybe they're maybe not portrayed as well as they could be. I don't know. It's very, it's a very complicated issue, and I can see why Nintendo just kind of noped out of it. Well, on the other side of the aisle, when it comes to ROM hacks, we have randomizers, and uh, this has become increasingly a thing in recent years with speedrunning. Now, mm -hmm. forgive me, I'm not as up on the speedrunning community as some of my friends who follow it very intently. I do watch game do games done quick and whatnot when it is going, so that tends to be how immersed I get into the actual speedrunning community. But the gist of it that I've been able to get is that people got so good at speedrunning these games, they were looking for extra challenge, right? So they started introducing the concepts of randomizers. And it's like, okay, you could speed running this speed run this game because you know every single freaking inch of it and every pixel, but can you beat it when it's totally randomized like this? And a really famous example is a link to the past where they would have top speedrunners racing against each other in a link to the past randomizer, which is always great. But then you also have RPG randomizers, and there are quite a few of them, Nadia. There's Ones for Dragon Quest Eight, interestingly enough, Dragon Quest Three, Breath of Fire Three, Quest Sixty Four. Oh boy! <laughs> because Good for everybody you, wants to play Quest Sixty Four. <laughs> I'm gonna look that up. I gotta see that. Uh, Earthbound, which is the PK scramble, uh, Mass Effect Two, Daggerfall, which has a random starting dungeon, 
Pokemon Rejuvenation, uh, which I wouldn't necessarily call a randomizer. It's more of a big, fat fan game that we'll get to in just half a hot second. And then you also have these custom sprite showcases that just randomly throw in sprites from other games and that kind of yes. thing. Uh, and those are a lot of fun to watch. So you can watch them on Twitch. There's a um, a channel for uh, Limit Break, and they will do. Um, they're they're known for being the home of RPG speedruns, and they will occasionally have. Uh, the last time I watched them, they had a Final Fantasy IV custom sprite showcase, which was a lot of fun. It's funny that you mentioned the uh, the whole speedrunning thing and how it connected to this, because there did come a point where. I don't want to say that speedruns are boring. That's never, ever the case. But there was a, a point where people were getting so good that there was absolutely no other way to get a better score except uh, mm. maybe pray for better RNG. So I guess they, te- they took it a step and made a whole randomization thing out of it. And I actually was watching a Zelda 2 randomization. I can't remember who was running it, but it was just a blast because you know the game. And you're like, okay, well, you're going to go into this cave early in the game. You're going to find a heart container. And no, instead, you got something completely useless at that point in the game. And you got to deal with that. And, you know, if God is good, you will be fine. If God is not pleased with you, well, you've got a problem. But you still got to sock through it because you made a commitment, damn it. The last GDQ, as I recall, the Zelda 2 run was one of the highlights. It was really good. Yeah, Zelda 2 is such a fascinating, flawed game on its own. So the fact that someone just decided to make it even more painful, I appreciate that. What's interesting, Nadia, is you said that there's just no way to get better records. I mean, as recently as a month ago, somebody set a new record in Super Mario Brothers. That's true. There's always, always, always a way, I suppose. But I just know that some speedrunners were just like, okay, well, uh, this is as good as it gets. Let's move on and make... Let's make things even more painful for ourselves. I'm just glad that the offshoot result is so much fun. Yeah, they they broke the record. They got what a lot of people consider to be an impossible record by beating it in less than four minutes and 55 seconds, which is just... Wow. Can you imagine that? They beat the original Mario in less than five minutes. And me, I'm still like, oh, 8-4 scares me. I don't want to go there. Oh. There are some speedruns that I find kind of obnoxious though, like watching the Wind Waker speed run where it's just Link in the, glitching through the water the entire time. It's actually kind of painful to watch. It's not very enjoyable. I do know that uh, my husband and I, when we watch games done quick, we sometimes skip the ones that are just nothing but glitch fests. And I do appreciate what has been done with these. Like it's still a lot of effort to figure out where these glitches will take you and what they will do. But I'm more interested in seeing the tight mechanics someone can pull off because they just know a game that well. Although I will say some of the most absolutely fascinating, mind-blowing t- uh, glitch fests you will find, unsurprisingly, in Final Fantasy VI, there was a incentive one year where it was, okay, well, we'll get this much money and we'll finish Final Fantasy VI in like three minutes or something ridiculous like that. And they got the incentive and what followed was just like a, just a mess of pixels and magic and and eldritch horrors. And it's like, okay, done. Here's the credits. So that was fun. <laughs> well, I would love to do a longer episode about RPG speedruns. So, hey, but I can't seem to find anybody who actually speedruns RPGs who will actually respond to my inquiries. So, hey, if you like to speedrun RPGs and you enjoy listening to this podcast, reach out to me on Twitter at the underscore Kappa or on email cat at bloodgodpod.com. I want to talk to you on this podcast. It'd be fun. In the meantime, 
I, I think the last thing I want to touch on when it comes to RPG ROM hacks are more the fan hacks that I think fit better with RPGs in general. The people who go and remix the games, remix, remix the stories. I think Pokemon is a rich vein for this. There are so many different there are so many versions. I mean, Pokemon Prism is one that you put here in the notes, and that is a pretty famous one, right? Yeah, Pokemon Prism looked really fascinating. Of course, it was C&D, but it takes place in a, in a region where they have a whole new story where technology is struggling against nature, and I think that's a really interesting theme for Pokemon. Um, it uses the old Pokedex, whereas some Pokemon fan hacks tend to actually have their own Pokedexes, which is really just the amount of work that goes into that must be crazy. They added three new types. Um, I forget exactly. I know there's Gaz, Sound, and I think Prism. So that's a whole... That's even more rebalancing you have to do. Some of these Pokemon fan games, unfortunately, before they were C&D, like they went on for years and years. So you were talking earlier about balance and how sometimes fan games don't have that. When a game like that lasts for so long and has so many fans, they really get a chance to fine-tune the final product. And it's always a shame when it's just kind of yanked away. And I'm still people are still a little, a little bitter about that, and I don't blame them. I don't mind some of the Pokemon remixes that go out. Like Pokemon Prism is pretty cool. I do get annoyed when they create their own Pokemon and put them in there because that's when you get into, this is obviously a fan creation. Like Smogon has been creating a lot of their own Pokemon over the years, and I absolutely refuse to use them. <laughs> I did not know Smogon did that. Yeah, they, they will hack them in, you know, just for a change of pace and that kind of thing. But that's fine. I, I know you can use them in their. Game. You can use their custom Pokemon in their battle simulators. So, uh, which okay, I do that not. Makes sense. I do not. Yeah, yeah. Them. Pokemon Uranium is one that has an all new Pokedex, as far as I can tell, and it has the nuclear type, which are basically just really angry rabid Pokemon, which I think is really cool. <laughs> but that one got C and D in 2016, unfortunately. Yeah, and that had been running for something like nine years, 1.5 million downloads, and Nintendo said nope. And I think that's. Just, I understand Nintendo's lawyers have to be this way and they have to be that way and blah, 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 but it still really freaking sucks. And frankly, I think that the bad PR that you generate by doing that from a game that's generating no money whatsoever, as far as I know, uh, it is just really kind of rotten. It makes me, makes me very sad. There is a fan translation or a fan hack of Pokemon Red that follows the manga. And I don't know if you're familiar with the manga, Nadia, but where... <sighs> I would say that the manga is very different from the anime in that yeah. Red is actually a very competent trainer and is catching legendaries and that kind of thing. And it follow it follows its whole uh, its whole different mythology from the anime. So yeah. Yeah, it doesn't red, like there's red, there's blue and green. And mm -hmm. I think red has Charmander, doesn't he? He doesn't have Pikachu. Yeah. Or I he think has so. Clefairy or something like that. Yeah. Let's there's different manga. He's not Ash, is the point. He's not Ash. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I know that. I think that manga is still running, isn't it? It's still going. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the anime. Ash is doomed to wander the world. Though the manga actually shifts <laughs> to different points of view with each new game. So, I have to say, I love the way the games, everybody grows up in the games. Like, Red, Red grew up, Blue grew up, mm -hmm. Todd grew up. And in the, in the anime, everyone's stuck in purgatory. They all did something terribly sinful, and now they're paying for it. <laughs> poor that's ash all, that's all i can think of 
Poor Ash. He seems really happy. I mean, he's become a very good Pokemon trainer. He has dozens upon dozens of Pokemon, most of them hanging out at Professor Oak's uh, lab. And he, uh, he he's wandering the world, going on new adventures. He finally won the Pokemon League, but that's not enough to break the curse. He still has to keep going. I love how that was national news, Pokemon. <laughs> Ash, finally- <laughs> Ash finally won. Ash finally won. And all these people who like grew up with Pokemon kind of dropped it. What the hell? He never won. <laughs> Well, he had won trophies before. He was good at winning island trophies. He won the Orange Island trophy. No, of course, because he has Litten on his side, and Litten's the best Pokemon. No, Orange Islands, this was well before he had Litten. It was was Dragonite versus Pikachu, and it was actually a really good fight. I really enjoyed it. That sounds really interesting. That would be, uh, did he win? Electro-type versus Dragonite can usually Yeah, yeah, no, it was was the big... it was the big finale, Dragonite versus Pikachu, because it was a filler arc because they were waiting for Gold and Silver to come out. Oh, that's pretty cool, though. That sounds really yeah. awesome. That sounds like a cool fight. I seem to remember the. I never watched the anime very much, but I do remember a really awesome fight between Charizard and Dragonite that was just animated really well. Pokemon Sun and Moon was basically the Orange Island filler arc, but put into game form, complete with the way that they did the challenges in Sun oh. and Moon. It was the same as the Orange Islands. So That's really cool. That's wild. I really like the idea of Pokemon Rejuvenation, which is basically this gigantic mashup of a whole bunch of different Pokemon games. And it's in the third generation style, which is quite a lovely kind of top. It's one of the more beautiful looks for Pokemon, in my opinion. And it incorporates a lot of the things like nuzlocke mode and randomizers and things like that it has like 21 starters 807 pokemon wow. 18 typed gyms so it's just a freaking sprawling mess of a game but i love that they have nuzlocke mode built in that's really cool i've never done a nuzlocke run i've always wanted to try it but i'm a coward i had some friends who were started a nuzlocke run in pokemon and they were basically naming everybody in our slack after the different pokemon <laughs> And your turn to die, cat. Yes, literally, they named. I forget what the Pokemon, which Pokemon got my name, but that Pokemon died almost immediately. And then Cat oh, no. 2 died pretty quickly afterwards. Cat so. 2? Yeah. Do Electric Boogaloo. But if you're not familiar with Nuzlocke runs, the general rules are there's permanent death for the Pokemon, and you can only catch one poke, uh, one Pokemon per screen, if I recall correctly, and you have to catch the first one that you encounter. So. It is. Yeah, yeah. It's really intense, especially when you get to the boss battles, because it can be a situation where one wrong critical hit will totally take you out. So it kind of demands a lot of grinding and a lot of luck to be able to successfully get through. The, the thing with Pokemon, the, the official Pokemon, is it does tend to be in a bit of a solid, uh, a locked in state. Like you always have that, with exceptions, you always have those gy- those eight gyms, the Victory Road, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's always the fan games that just completely blow the, the lid off things and make just do something wild. Hmm. Like, I'm sure, what would happen if Game Freak said, "Hey, we're going to have like 18 gyms and like, <laughs> and then and, and the Nuzlocke mode built in and and all this stuff"? It would never ever happen. So you have the fans who are filling in this this need, I suppose. That's really it's really cool. It's a fan wish list given life. It is. It is. It very much is. And I have never played Pokemon Refresh, but by the sounds of it, it works. Yeah, no, it it looks pretty cool. So I might give it a chance. And then beyond that, and maybe we'll get this into this in a different episode, but there are the RPG creepypastas that get turned into actual games. 
like Pokemon Black is an infamous case. Uh, you go look that that ghost story sometime. And somebody like actually went out and made that into a an, a ROM. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I actually when I was an about.com guide for the Nintendo DS, I studied and wrote about Pokemon Lost Silver, which is a really one of the more creepy, actually effective creepy pastas that talks about like Red becoming so engaged in Pokemon fighting that he dies and turns into a ghost that is forced to wander because he never found satisfaction. And someone actually it wasn't even a ROM hack. He built it from the ground up. A, it was a small game, but a scenario where you wander through that story and you hear the, the, the ambient sounds that were described in the creepypasta and you see the kind of the Pokemon that he describes in the text as well. And some of them are very memorable. Like, I'll never forget the image of Pikachu, like, weeping. Like, it, it was so sad. The, this this um, ghostly Pokemon held on by Red, who, of course, doesn't talk to you. He doesn't talk to you in regular silver either, but that just makes it creepier. So, yeah, people have gone through and they've made these creepypastas, and some of them are extremely effective. They're really well done. Well, speaking of creepy and extremely effective ROM hacks, Nadia, have you ever played the Earthbound Halloween hack Bad Fur Day edition? <laughs> the bad fur- I've heard about the Halloween hack, but I did not know about the Bad Fur Day expansion. <laughs> no, that's just literally what it's called, so... I do know that it is Toby Fox's kind of breakout for mm -hmm. uh, he wrote Megalovania for it. And well, here we are. It certainly makes it one of the most significant ROM hacks on this list, just because of how popular Toby Fox ultimately became. Yeah. And things went full circle and he started writing music for Nintendo games. But if you're not familiar with it, it was written for an event where people were creating a lot of different uh, Halloween-themed hacks, I believe, for Earthbound. And he, this is the one that Toby Fox made. It's apparently extremely offensive to the point that Toby Fox has kind of been like, I'm kind of embarrassed about it. It's using a lot of outdated language that I'm not very proud of. So he's not disavowing it per se, but he's just saying, eh, I'm a little embarrassed. You know, I made it when I was younger. It takes yeah. place in an alternate timeline of Earthbound. The Chosen Four didn't return in present day of 199X after the defeat of Gigas. And it's much more difficult than the classic Earthbound. And apparently it people were comparing it to Silent Hill and that kind of thing. So it's it gets wow. into disturbing because everybody always says Earthbound has a little bit of that Cthulhu mind bleepery going on, right? And so this it absolutely one, does. This takes it to to the limit. Yeah, and thinking about, it, I have never played this myself, but one thing I have to say about Earthbound is its ambient sounds for some of its dungeons are extremely creepy. I think that the opening bit with the meteor and the music slash sound that plays with that is still a little bit spine chilling. And in the same, if you enter a cave, you'll kind of hear these distant echoes of roars and stuff like that. And I could see Toby Fox being the way he is, working really, really well with that. And again, of course, we got Megalovania out of it. And what an epic boss theme that is. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he went and made his own soundtrack for this ROM hack probably tells you all you need to know about what would happen with Toby Fox. He, he's really super talented at what he does. Um his games are great, of course, but his sound, his music is just next level. I'm really looking forward to Deltarune whenever that comes out. I think Earthbound Halloween Hack is a great example of people are always going, how do I get into the games industry? How do I make video games? And the answer is you make video games. 
Like, you don't go to school for it. You don't take classes. You go and you use the wonderful world of the internet, YouTube, and that kind of thing. You learn the tools that are freely available and widely available. Maybe team up with some artists. You join up on a fan forum or something like that. The next thing you know, you're making video games. You're designing. You're doing the thing. You're creating a portfolio. Yeah, creating a portfolio is is your basic thing. I mean, I have to say, as an old person, nobody cares what school you went to. That mm-hmm. it, it's not. It's just true. They want to see your work, and that's why you do get people who make entire extensions for, say, Skyrim or Morrowind or whatever, because that is their portfolio right there. And yes, that can very much get you a job. I know somebody who went to a school to make video games, and they were able to score an internship at Gearbox and they were working on a triple A game and they were going to ship a triple A game. They were very excited because having, being able to ship a game, that's a big thing to have on your resume, right? You know what Mm -hmm. that triple A game was, Nadia? Oh no, what? Alien Colonial Marines. No, oh, what a freaking waste of money and, and years. Oh, poor guy. One of the most infamously horrible games of all time. And then somehow he started working for Mia Khalifa, which look her up, and ended up going to a West Ham game. And the guy's had an interesting life. And also he's done stand-up comedy. (laughs) (laughs) He probably got a ton of material out of Colonial Marines. Yeah, good for him, honestly. He seems to be doing all right. Good for him. That's a a hell of a thing to bounce back from. (laughs) All right, Nadia. What do you think randomizers and fan hacks and all of that stuff can contribute to the rpg community well hacks sometimes they can contribute to like whole new games so we were Mm. talking about halloween hack and with that in a way we got undertale so that just kind of goes to show how people who cut their teeth on those projects really can advance to really incredible great things down the line and yeah if if nothing else it just gives us something to tool with the the pokemon uh, fan games are some of them are just incredible c and d or not so they just they give people an outlet it's, it's kind of like you know f- fan fiction going on ao3 or fan art going on DeviantArt. this is just another way for people to express themselves and some of the stuff they create some of it's horrible let's let's be honest but some of it you, there are definitely some diamonds in the rough out there I think that the comparison to like AO3 is perfect because I think that RPGs really inspire a degree of creativity in people that a lot of other video game genres don't because they are out to A, tell an interesting story and B, there's always an invest a level of personal investment in RPGs that you aren't going to find in other genres. You are going out to beat other games. In RPGs, you're going in to kind of live in a world, right? So, mm-hmm. so many people want to keep living in that world to an extent, make a part of that world their own. So in their own kind of interesting meta way, they're creating their own fan projects. And I think that's admirable and cool. That is so admirable and cool. And I think it says something about people in general. You, you have a lot of um, naysayers who say, well, people will never work they they cannot work unless they have money, unless they have that promise of money. That That's why we have to keep people kind of working and never resting and all of that. Otherwise, they'll be lazy. But no, something like a fan translation proves that people will do something if it feels good. It feels like something they have to get out there. And, and I think, you know, for all the horrible things humans can do, that ingenuity makes me smile. Yeah, 
there are times when it can lean into the more toxic elements of the RPG community, I feel, especially of course the the censorship side of it and all of that kind of stuff. But I think that when people come out and they're just expressing themselves in kind of a pure creative sense, it's a lot of fun. And just seeing things like, especially in the Pokemon community, the introduction of Nuzlocke runs, that which are then incorporated into the actual games, I think is really neat. Heck, not just Nuzlocke runs, Twitch Plays Pokemon was one hell of an event to go through. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily call that a ROM hack, but yeah, was, people are finding really creative ways to implement these games and experience these games. And that is one, certainly maybe one degree removed is Twitch Plays Pokemon from your typical ROM hack. Yeah, but that it was certainly a step. All right. Do you have your favorite ROM hacks that you want to share? We would love to hear about them. We'd love to talk about them in a future episode. Send me an email at catabloodgodpod.com or drop a note in our mailbag over on our Discord. Okay, Nadia, it's time for the epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God. Don't go away. Okay, Nadia, it's time for the epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God. And this week's epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God is the Mana Beast, which, according to you, is was your first really big RPG struggle, and you beat them the hard way. Tell me about it. The Mana Beast is, first of all, is such an interesting character in the lore of the game because the bad guy in the game up to that point is Thanatos. Really, really subtle there, I know. And he becomes a lich, and you beat him, and unfortunately, Prim's boyfriend dies because he was used as the host for the lich, so that's dramatic on its own. But you don't have a minute to rest because that's when the Mana Beast comes after you. Now what's happening is basically the Empire in Secret of Mana has resurrected the Mana Fortress, which is threatening to de destroy the world because the balance of Mana has shifted, blah, 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 whatever. And the Mana Beast is supposed to destroy the fortress and bring the, the and kind of restore that balance. So you're not really fighting a bad guy. You're fighting a, a force of nature that exists because it has to. And the main character, Randy, even says as much. He hesitates and says, I won't fight the Mana Beast. He's just trying, trying to restore Mana back to the way it should be. And, well, his party members point out... Um, Either you defeat this thing or the world goes kapooey. You really don't have a choice here. So, the Mana Beast fight itself is really cool mode 7 trickery. But it's difficult if you don't know what you're doing. And it's very possible you won't know what you're doing because it's extremely opaque. Basically, after defeating the Lich, you unlock Mana Magic. And that just kind of shows up as a brief notice. And what you're supposed to do is have the sprite cast... Uh, mana magic on Randy's sword and then the girl casts mana magic on Randy's sword as well and quote unquote the mana sword reawakens so you have a, a very few minutes to kind of use that sword and carve into the mana beast and only at a very specific time can you hit it so you have to time the, you have to time everything perfectly now I didn't know what the mana magic thing was all about but I did discover that if you charge your sword all the way and unleash it on the Mana Beast, you can do maybe 
100, 200 points of damage when you're supposed to be doing several rounds of 999 damage at once. So basically this monster that was supposed to take, if you do it the right way, it's supposed to take, you know, maybe five minutes to defeat. It took me probably a half an hour or more of just hacking away at this stupid monster, completely ignorant of what I was supposed to do. And again, this is a monster that only presents itself as vulnerable for a very few precious seconds. And while it's actually vulnerable, it will still hit you with really strong light magic. It was a real, real struggle. But man, when I did it, I felt good. But I felt so ripped off at the ending that I was I was pretty mad after that. The Mono Beast is gorgeous. It is a huge, huge sprite when you are fighting it. And it makes use of the Super Nintendo's capabilities in really interesting ways. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, the music that you hear at that point, Meridian Dance, I think it's called, is also just fantastic. And one interesting thing about the end of Secret of Mana, and we've talked many times about how the game was probably unfinished, you will hear in succession two pieces of music that are really good before the Mana Beast attacks. It's the only time in the game you hear it, and it's literally for a few seconds, even though they're full-blown songs. They went unused, I suppose, or practically unused, and I thought that was just interesting that they were shoehorned in there, even though they're just some of the best music in the game. Somebody made a 2D short as a tribute to this particular sequence in which the characters prepare to go fight the actual Mana Beast. And I don't know about the design of the characters themselves, but the actual animation is very good. I enjoy it. Yeah, I, I remember that. Um, yeah, the, the character designs were a little bit kind of controversial, but the, the short itself is really fantastic. I also looked at it on the PS4, and as with most things on the PS4, the Mana Beast looks much worse. Well, by that point, it wasn't quite as impressive because, well, the the whole sequence was really cool in 16-bit, but a little less impressive in, uh, well, Secret of Mana remake. Well, in the original Secret of Mana, first of all, the sprite's gorgeous, and the Mana Beast itself is kind of cute and distinctive, right? Whereas in the PS4 version, it just looks kind of like a Bahamut. It's very generic. The Mana Beast is also extremely interesting because it resembles your mount, Flammy, very, very strongly. And that's something that the that the character, characters bring up. Like, hey, have we been riding on an apocalyptic beast this whole time? Oh, well. <laughs> have we been? Oh, have we? Yeah, it's like Evangelion a little bit. So we've been driving uh, the, an apocalyptic beast all this time. Whoops. Also had the soul of her mothers. Go go listen to our Evangelion podcast sometime. It's really good. And a lot of people really enjoyed it. Okay, Nadia, that was our epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God. If you want to contribute your own epic boss battle, do me a favor and drop it in the mailbag, and we may include it in the next episode of the podcast. And that is it for this week's episode of Acts of the Blood God. Thanks to everybody for listening. I am feeling... A little loopy, as always, after a long week of work, but I'm getting a little better, Nadia. I'm getting settled in. I'm getting adjusted. The cat works very, very hard. Balo, I do understand they kind of threw you in the fire because every time, it just seems like the first few weeks, someone important was off, so <laughs> you had to pick up their slack. Well, we get the whole team back this week, so I'm very excited. It's going to help a lot. <laughs> You've been forged in fire, and now everything will be so much easier. Forged in fire. Speaking of which, uh, you should go check out my appearance on Nintendo Voice Chat, which is the 
Nintendo dedicated podcast for IGN. I was hanging out with Per Schneider, who also lived in Japan at one point. We were comparing notes about working for companies that were affiliated with the Yakuza at one point or another. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you told me about the drug bust with yours, but I didn't know it was affiliated with the Yakuza. No, no, no. When I worked for Nova, it was owned by a guy who was getting money from the Yakuza, so it had mob ties. Beautiful. Oh, man, I missed all. I, I should have gone to teach in Japan. I, I would have had like just incredible stuff to write about for the rest of my life. And this may be apocryphal this because this is just my memory, but I'm pretty sure that the CEO, when the company went under, actually went into hiding because uh, law enforcement and Japanese gangsters were after him. <laughs> Good luck hiding. I hope he went to like some mountain in Hokkaido because he's, he's not coming back to Tokyo. But they did find him eventually, so. All right, folks, that's it for this week's episode of Acts of the Blood God. We'll be back next week, as always. But until then, for Nani and myself, thanks for listening. Contribute to the Patreon. But until then, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.